Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. I'll always remember where I was on March 12th, 2020, when Leo Varadkar, then Taoiseach, took to the steps of Blair House in Washington to announce the closure of our schools, creches and colleges. Uh, good morning, everyone. I need to speak to you about coronavirus and COVID-19. For the past few weeks... The it was a busy Thursday afternoon at our Tower Street office, and shortly beforehand, we heard there was going to be an announcement from the Taoiseach. As we turned up the volume to hear Leo's words from this hastily set-up podium, the room fell quiet. In news terms, it was a hugely significant moment, but also a moment that was going to directly affect the lives of those listening and their families in a deeply personal way. There will be many more cases. More people will get sick. And unfortunately, we must face the tragic reality that some people will die. The virus is all over the world. By the weekend, the offices at Tara Street had closed and operations had moved to people's sitting rooms and kitchens, to their bedrooms and attics, from where the Irish Times has been produced since. You probably remember that day too. We are in a different world. From six o'clock tonight, Ireland is on lockdown in an attempt to slow down the COVID-19 pandemic. Taoiseach Leo Varadkar made the announcement in Washington around half 11 Irish time this morning. Coronavirus had been simmering in the background for weeks, but this was the first big government intervention. The first sign to the public that this was real and it needed our full attention. When you hear about a global pandemic, you can feel very powerless. We mm. can all feel powerless. The important message actually is we all have huge power because if you do as we're asking you now, mm. you're going to save lives. And think about your mom and your dad, your granny and your granddad. The name. weeks and months since then have been tough for everyone. Every single aspect of society has been turned upside down. Lives have been lost, loved ones kept apart and livelihoods ruined. It's the uncertainty because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. They say two weeks, but that could lead to months. We just don't know what's going to happen. That morning in March, the Taoiseach told us that in, in time, time, our lives will go back to normal. And while we're not there yet, and there is still a huge amount of uncertainty, we are on the path out of lockdown and we're learning how to live alongside this virus. As life becomes a little bit more recognisable, we've decided to finish up the Confronting Coronavirus podcast for now. We know at times there has been an overwhelming amount of information out there on the pandemic and we hope in some small way this podcast has helped you to digest that information and navigate your way through. In our final instalment for Confronting Coronavirus, we've asked a handful of Irish Times journalists to take a look back at the last couple of months and how the pandemic has played out. A public health emergency like this had not happened since the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918-1919 and none of us in our lifetimes have ever had to report on anything like this before. In the first part of this two-part episode, we hear from public affairs editor Simon Carswell and our political reporter, Jennifer Bray. Sometimes after press comes, especially when you're covering politics, you turn around to the other journalists afterwards and you go, God, what are we going to make out of that? You know, what's interesting in that? Whereas after this, we all just kind of look to each other. And say, How are we going to distill all of this information into one piece? You know, so it was, it was really, really intense. Throughout the pandemic, Simon has been writing on a wide array of issues 
from testing to lockdown restrictions to the grave impact the virus has had on our nursing homes. Here, Simon takes a look back at how things have changed since March. Working life before coronavirus was a world away. It seems like a very strange place to think back on what it was like. The stories that I was covering before COVID hit, and I mean, I remember the first case in particular in that school in North Dublin on February 29th. And I was in the office that day, uh, that Sunday. And but I went look back and looked at the stories that I was writing at that time in the week after that, the, the 10 days after that, before the first death on March 11th. And I was reporting on the visit of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge to Dublin, the uh, Will and Kate's visit to Dublin, which seems very strange now looking back given what we've been through and the fact that there's no international travel. The Cambridges had arrived for their first official visit to Ireland. Here on a subtle charm offensive deployed by the British government to help smooth... I was reporting on the opening, reopening of Step Aside Garda Station, which was a big political win um, for a minister as he was then, Shane Ross. And I was also reporting on people getting debt write-offs in on their mortgages in insolvency court. And then the kind of broader theme story that I was working on before coronavirus arrived was the possibility of a hard Brexit and what it means for the fishing industry. I took a visit up to Killybegs. So yeah, it seems like um, a different, different time completely. The standout story for me that I worked on over the last four months was on the nursing homes. 56% of the deaths, of the 1,700 deaths in Ireland are in nursing homes. And I, as soon as I saw that, I said, that's, that's the story. That's what, I, that's what I need to cover. That's why I need to understand more and help our readers understand more. Key state organisations left the nursing home sector and its residents isolated in those early days. The dismay will live forever with us. But we welcome Minister Harris lead in eventually bringing senior... I worked with Jack Power on a story on St Mary's Hospital, the uh, nursing home in the Phoenix Park in Dublin, and the story of Rose Hegarty, one of the 1,738 victims of COVID-19. And it was quite shocking, her story. This image of her trying her best in early March to protect herself from coronavirus by taking all these personal precautions that she was taking, hand sanitizer staying in a room and there she was watching Leo Varadkar in mid-March announce the lockdown and she herself was trying to create her own personal lockdown. This emergency is likely to go on well beyond March 29th. It could go on for months into the summer. So we need to be sensible in the approaches we take. Once the virus got into the home, it wasn't possible for her to protect herself. I just thought that was just heartbreaking. She loved looking out on the deer and the wildlife in the Phoenix Park through her window. And at the same window, this was the window that her relatives came to to say goodbye when she was dying from COVID. I mean, I just found it really heart-wrenching. It was very important to tell her story because, and we've tried to do this with the Lost Lives section in our website, is to put names and faces and life stories and people's own personal stories behind the figures. Because every day we're hearing X number of new cases, Y number of new deaths. And it's very cold, these kind of statistics. And while it's very difficult, you are prying into people's personal lives and you are um, infringing on people's like devastating personal tragedies. You have to tell those stories because without those, 
we really wouldn't understand all these huge sacrifices we're making in our, our everyday lives, they're just the greatest upheavals in our everyday lives. And why are we doing this? We're doing this because of these personal tragedies that people are going through. We're, we're abiding by these very severe public restrictions to prevent those personal tragedies. And that's why it's important that we tell the story of the people affected. In short, we're asking people to come together as a nation by staying apart from each other. I think what the pandemic has taught us when it comes to nursing homes and residential care facilities is that it's most at risk when it comes to a virus. It's, you know, if you look at the instructions that the government gave when it came to cocooning, uh, that word that a lot of over 70s didn't like, that they could cocoon at home. You can't cocoon in a congregated residential setting. That's what this pandemic has shown us. And whether it's a nursing home or community hospital that has multi-occupancy rooms, I mean, that clearly doesn't work where you have a rampant infection running through a uh, congregated setting like that. So you, you know, I don't know the answer, but we we need to reassess exactly how we look after our elderly in this country. And I think, you know, you could take a very ideological deep dive as to what happened to create the nursing home sector. I mean, it's 80% run by private operators. I mean, the government and successive governments have outsourced the care of our elderly to the private sector. Was that appropriate as a policy? I think that needs to be looked at. And it's urgent as well. This isn't something like, oh, we can take a few years and see how, you know, whether we can come up with a new model. The risk of a second wave coming through uh, nursing homes is very real and very urgent. It could happen in the autumn. So this isn't some sort of chin-stroking exercise that we need to kind of take time to mull over. There needs to be a very rapid assessment of what we need to do to protect this sector more closely. There are huge parallels between this crisis and a previous crisis that I worked on 10 years ago. The financial crisis, the banking crisis was this kind of, you know, they say in an earthquake, you don't know, you've no kind of level to understand just how shaken you are because everything is, is, is thrown up in the air. And it's, I think what's happened in this crisis uh, this public health crisis is very similar to what happened in that financial crisis that decisions had to be made very very quickly and you have to make decisions with the best evidence you have available and the problem was is nobody understood this virus this is a novel virus this is nobody quite understood how it was uh, how it was being transmitted we didn't understand that there was asymptomatic spread that people couldn't that people who weren't showing symptoms could be highly infectious and i think bearing all that in mind there was some decisions that had to be taken and in hindsight they were the wrong decisions better decisions could have been made and at the time in the banking crisis it was very similar you know they didn't quite know the depth of the problem they didn't understand the depth of the problem in this crisis either. So, so decisions had to be made. And a lot of the responses, in, given having, having covered both, are very similar. Um, so I think that um, what needs to happen now is the lessons lessons need to be learned very quickly and need to be applied very quickly um, uh, when it comes to protecting the country against a potential second wave. Simon Carswell is public affairs correspondent with the Irish Times. Over the past four months, political reporter Jennifer Bray has been documenting the state's response to the pandemic. From childcare to tourism to government formation, Jennifer regularly attends the government briefings on coronavirus. But there is one in particular which stands out in her mind. 
So we have hundreds of ventilators already, hundreds more have been secured, and we'll get more every week uh, so that we can maximise uh, the capacity uh, to ventilate patients if they need to be ventilated. I've done this job for 12 years, and of all the press conferences I've ever attended, this was one of the most surreal. But we cannot say at this stage whether um, the number of people who uh, need to be ventilated will exceed the number of ventilators that we have, and unfortunately no country can uh, determine that uh, at the moment. Leo Varadkar came out and he said they had had briefings from medical and uh, public health officials and based on the modelling that they'd seen, there'd be 15,000 cases potentially by the end of the month. Remember, we were only halfway through March at this stage. That is inevitable. That cannot be stopped. Uh, We're at the very start of that curve that people are starting to to become familiar with. Uh, So there will be a very significant increase uh, in the number of cases uh, every day uh, for the next uh, couple of weeks. In this one press conference, we're learning that 15,000 people are going to probably become infected, that, you know, Croke Park is going to be used as a testing facility, that there's a huge amount of deaths expected, that we're going to have to order mass amounts of ventilators, that we need to buy billions of euros of PPE. And you're sort of sitting there, you know, typing, thinking, okay, 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 right. And that was one of the, I think, the most surreal briefings I've ever been at. And sometimes after press conference, especially when you're covering politics, you turn around to the other journalists afterwards and you go, God, what are we going to make out of that? You know, what's interesting in that? Whereas after this, we all just kind of looked at each other. And said, How are we going to distill all of this information into one piece? You know, so it was, it was really, really intense. In a newspaper and in journalism, it's all about communication and being able to talk to people and see people, and that was gone. And also, in terms of my job, my job is really quite simple, to find out what's happening in government uh, and communicate it to our readers and, you know, in a a truthful, fair, accurate and timely way, timely being key these days. But, you know, even that was difficult because I'm used to kind of being in Leinster House, bumping into people, finding out what's going on. If someone doesn't answer your phone call, you can just hang around, you'll find them eventually. Oh, that's gone. So you're just kind of hitting the phone lines from first thing in the morning till till last thing at night. And it, it sort of draws the job out a little bit more. But like, I'm certainly not complaining because I, I love my job. I'm lucky to have a job. And also, like a lot of people have suffered a lot worse in this pandemic than just having to work extra hours. So, you know, I think the working from home part is the part that I'll remember the most about how things changed. And we're kind of getting back to a bit more normality now, especially in terms of being able to go in and out of the doll. So, so that's good. Doesn't mean I'm getting any more answers to questions, but we're trying. If you sit back and judge what has transpired, the only assessment that can be landed on is that it all is changed and changed utterly. So politically, we had just come out of an election. It was a bruising election for some, like Fine Gael, um, and it was a historic election for others, like Sinn Féin. Um, the whole landscape, really, of, of politics was changing, and sorry, it looked like nothing could change that or change or stop that momentum that was behind that was behind Sinn Féin. And then coronavirus arrived, uh, and it turned everything on its head. So government formation then became just this much more drawn out affair because the Fine Gael caretaker government had to make decisions there and then. Uh, they couldn't wait for the government formation process to finish. They had to get on with it um, because the situation at the time was really, really rapidly evolving. I think, you know, with the fullness of time, as in a half a year that we have since since uh, since it all kicked off, I think they've done a good, I think they did a good job in terms of communications. I think they did a good job in telling the public exactly what was happening and exactly what needed to be done. 
They, they excelled at finding a way to tell us that these awful things were happening, but that there was light at the end of the tunnel. So this afternoon, let me end with the words of a wise man, some words of hope. In the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. I think there were other parts that maybe they could have done better on. Um, you know, obviously it's easy for me to say that, especially when you're looking back with hindsight. But, you know, I'll take, for example, the situation in, in the nursing homes. I think even Leo Varadkar said in one of his last press conferences that maybe that's some, something they could have got in to earlier. Maybe that's something they could have addressed earlier. So communications wise, I think they did really great. And I think in terms of maybe getting ahead of it in certain areas, uh, they could have done better. But like I say, it's very easy to say these things with the benefit of hindsight, especially when you're, you know, like me, a commentator and you're not actually having to make the decisions. Okay, Jennifer Bray, then Shane Beattie, then Craig Hughes. Uh, Taoiseach, you mentioned a figure of 30% at day-by-day -day, uh, growth. Um, that will be 10,000 cases in, in two weeks. Um, where will these... It's, it's something you're reporting on that is important to everybody and affects the whole health of, of the nation, but also your own life, you know, your own personal life. So you're writing these things and you're taking this stuff in and you're, you're trying to be as professional as you can. But of course, in the back of your head, you're sort of thinking, what's, what does this mean for my life too? So it was just, it, it was, it is completely all consuming and there's, there's always so much more to learn. There's, there's so much, like we, we don't really know what's going to happen over the next few months. We don't know if we're going to have a second wave. We suspect so. We don't know the full impact it's going to have on the economy. So there's just so much more work to do on it. So in that way, it'll be something you write about that from the moment it starts, you probably won't stop writing about it for years. And that kind of terrifies me, but it's the way it is. We kind of largely know what we're dealing with now in terms of how the virus acts. We don't know everything. There's still a lot we don't know, but we have the basics. So we didn't have that in the beginning. So the government at that time, the caretaker government, was completely in the dark and trying to figure this virus out and figure out what our public health reaction is. We know that now. Now we need to figure out a way to live alongside it. And that involves rebooting the economy. That's the big job for the government. And Fianna Fáil obviously has a really big job of work to do in terms of I suppose, rescuing their reputation because the last time they were in government, we know what happened um, to the economy. And, you know, this time they have to show that not only are they fiscally prudent, to use a phrase I absolutely hate, but, you know, that that they can rescue our, our economy and do a good job of it. So it's not an easy task and they'll need the, they'll need the full, five, full four or five years, you know. And that's it. Thanks to Simon Carswell and Jennifer Bray for their contributions today and on our previous episodes too. Tomorrow we'll be back with part two, where we'll be hearing from sports journalist Maliki Clerken and our Europe correspondent Naomi O'Leary. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan. Thanks for listening.